welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding Interview Edition, recorded January 6th, 2016. That's right, we made it into another year, and we are still going strong. I know uh, Paul's got some interviews lined up here soon. Uh, we're doing this one tonight. i got a couple others coming up, either uh, late January or early February, so there's no end in sight for the Game of Crowdfunding. Thank goodness, and of course, a lot of that has to do with our wonderful Patreon sponsors. So thank you very much for sponsoring us over on Patreon. And that includes Don Z. Thank you, Don Z, very much for supporting us over on Patreon and allowing us to continue the Game of Crowdfunding interview edition. But with that, I get to talk to somebody I haven't talked to in a little while, plus one. (laughs) And who... Is joining me on Skype tonight. I am Daniel Greck, designer of Dirigible Disaster. And I'm Dan Letzring, publisher, Letty Man Games. I'm publishing Dirigible Disaster. So, as I stated right before we started recording, these guys have been gracious enough to make this as difficult as possible for you guys listening in audio form because they're both named Dan. And uh, so, you know, just, just go with it. Uh, if you're confused on who's talking, we apologize, but we'll try to make it as, uh, <laughs> as as easy to determine as possible. So, Letterman Games, you might have remember that one. I mean, we've talked to uh, Dan before from Letterman Games back when he was publishing uh, his, or when he was on Kickstarter for Dino Dude Ranch, uh, which was uh, successful on a relaunch. And of course, back when we talked to him at that time, we talked about his first game as well, PhD the card game. So he has. Two successful Kickstarters under his belt, and now he's going back to Kickstarter, but this time not with the game he's designed, but the game that Daniel Greck has designed. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that game here this evening, and of course we're going to get to know Daniel Greck a little bit more. We haven't talked to him previously on this uh, show, but of course we'll have uh, Dan Letzring pipe in as well and let us know how this wonderful partnership came to be and how he decided to publish somebody else's game. I guess to start us off, we, uh, we talked a little bit. Daniel Greck has not been on the show before, so he gets the wonderful warm-up questions that we normally do. Are you ready for the most <laughs> grueling questions that you will ever hear in your life? I am ready. All right, so make them count. Okay, here we go. Of course, uh, this is Part of All Us Geeks uh, is a standalone segment on All Us Geeks. So, of course, we like to ask, what makes you a geek, sir? Uh, well, I have a very large uh, board game shelf behind me right now. But I'm also sitting near uh, several boxes of comics. Uh, I've been playing video games most of my life. Uh, Magic and all those other card games and whatnot. I'm getting married in April, and my beautiful fiancé is allowing us to do a comic book-themed wedding, which <laughs> is kind of amazing. <laughs> That lets you know that you picked the right one. <laughs> nice. My fiance is a geek about a lot of things, but I don't know if we'll have a themed wedding. <laughs> yeah, my wife would not have let that fly. <laughs> so, so good, good on you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. You picked well. Of course, one of the other questions that we like to ask is: we believe that you can geek out about anything. It just depends on how passionate you are about it. So. The follow-up question to that is, do you have any geek-level passions for something that the typical person would not consider geek-related? 
Oh boy. Uh, I, I personally believe that if you're into sports a whole lot, that makes you a either sports nerd or sports geek. Uh, so I'm actually very big into football, uh, specifically the Green Bay Packers, which given the way they're playing lately makes my geek rage, uh, build up. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, if, if you follow football at all, American football. So I'd say that's probably my biggest non-traditional geeky thing I get geeky about. All right. I, I kind of feel obligated to end this interview now since I'm in Minnesota, but since I'm not a big sports geek, <laughs> I'll let it slide <laughs> for now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right. So, uh, our last and final warm up question that we like to make sure we ask is besides designing games, uh, unless that is your full time job and you can be as generic or specific as you need to be, but what do you do for a living, sir? I am a, I have a degree, a couple degrees in structural engineering and I act actually uh, teach civil engineering courses at a local college in New Jersey. Uh, so I am, I guess, a professor, if you wanted to boil it down to one word. So another one on the education chalkboard. There you go. Another, another point yeah. for education. We always say that a majority of the people that work in game design seem to be either in you know IT, programmers, computers, or education. And we've even had several people that do both. <laughs> And so far, I mean, you know, every once in a while we get the, the oddball out that has, you know, some other type of job, whatever. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, I think we ring pretty true uh, and, and get a, a majority out of those two fields. Yeah, I think you missed one, graphic design, too, I find. A lot of people are into art or graphic design as well in this field. Yeah, I guess towards the end of last year that might have started growing for uh, our interviews a little bit. I mean, I think we've got three or four total that have been on the show, but for the most part, yeah, that was late last year. That started kind of happening for at least yeah. for this show. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think IT is the big one, right? Right, yep. I think it's you know something to do with the whole the structure and the project management and, and all of those kind of, kind of the analytical look and flow of things that kind of, easily can translate into uh, at least portions of designing a game. Agreed. And I think a lot of them try and uh, design video games as well and realize what goes into that and say, you know what, I'd like to try traditional board games instead. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've actually, we've actually had at least one person on that kind of made that comment. You know, they, they were doing video games and it was not the, instant, not the instant gratification kind of thing. Right. I mean, they, cause you kind of, hold yourself away and work on this thing and don't necessarily get a lot of feedback until you're ready to present it to to people and, and it's in a playable form. Uh, so it's just the, the length of time and, and the amount of time they have to spend on it without any other people kind of giving them input or feedback or keep going at it kind of thing. And then switching to, the, you know, the, the tabletop side where they were able to, in some instances, get it like a prototype up and running within a few days, um, you know, less than a week and have people actually starting to give them feedback. It was a completely different energy for them. And that's when they're like, yep, this is what I need to do. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. Dan, now that, you know, Letterman Games has, you know, these two successful Kickstarters out there now, 
clearly you're rolling in dough and, and this is your full-time job now, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I wish. No, I'm a, I'm a forensic scientist. So I, uh, I do that. I'm a scientist by trade. And, uh, still loving your job every day. I remember, uh, you waxing poetically and passionately about that last time you were on as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I love what I do. And I, you know, I come home and I have a great family and I love them and then they all go to bed and then I spend my nights publishing and I love that as well. So I'd say, you know, other than lack of sleep, I love every minute of every day. <laughs> what? what lack of sleep? What's I know, right? None of us get to sleep in this world. No, you get easily like 20 hours a night, right? Oh, yeah. With my, my two young kids, I'm sure. <laughs> Daniel Grack, do you have, uh, you know, not only your full-time job and everything like that, but family and all that other stuff to contend with as well while you're trying to design games? I live right now just with my fiance, uh, and she tends to be pretty, pretty cool about letting me have some time if I need it to do game things. So uh, my biggest issue is if I stay up a little bit later and I don't want to wake her up getting back into bed or something like that at night if I uh, go a little bit longer, but it hasn't been too bad. As of yet, it is interesting when I, if my mother starts asking me questions about it, because she doesn't really play games at all. So she'll try and get these in-depth answers out of me that I know she doesn't actually want. But that's pretty much the most difficult thing to deal with. Yeah, I, I just wondering if like either of you get the, uh, the wonderful what I get every once in a while, which is valid. It's very valid, but every once in a while I get the, you know, it's, uh, it's actually been a while since we've either done anything together or seen each other. So can you make some time? <laughs> yeah. I usually, I try and really be good about compartmentalizing everything, giving her her time and, you know, working at night. But when I know like this launch was coming up for next week, I was like, okay, we're going to launch on the 12th. So get a new book in the series you're reading because my nights are going to be pretty busy. And she does that and she loves it because my wife helps a lot with a lot of the game uh, publishing end of it. And she has a lot of input and works with me. But when I'm doing a lot of the campaign management, she can't really help. So she just gets a book and she reads and she's really cool about it. But I do get the nudge every now and then that it's like, it's been a few nights in a row that I haven't seen you at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that from time to time. Or it's, you know, our shows are kind of backing up because you're not around to watch them. <laughs> Like, all right, we'll pick a day and we'll power watch. And <laughs> we're still trying to watch. We haven't watched the latest Walking Dead yet. We're still one behind it. We've been trying for weeks to sit down and watch it. <laughs> wow, that is, that is behind. <laughs> yeah, you know, you you had a whole lot of break there where there wasn't much going on on TV. What what's the deal there? <laughs> I know, but Pandemic Legacy just took over, so we've been doing a two player campaign, and that's pretty much every free time we have now. We've been doing that. <laughs> Nice. I I have not played just because I don't know. There's something about the legacy games that just turned me off in general. Even though I do love Pandemic. Oh, uh, if you love Pandemic, you would. It's awesome. It's uh, you've got to try it, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know they they haven't ex asked me to review it, so that's usually what all my game time is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna tweet to Matt Leacock tonight and ask him to send you a copy to review. Yeah. That. uh that that tweet will go into vapor somewhere. <laughs> Who? Uh, and I'm talking about on my end. All right. You know, I usually like to kind of have some discussion around how people get into designing and, and stuff like that. So, Daniel Grack, would you like to have a little bit of a conversation with me about that? Absolutely. Let's do this. All right. 
So you've got this game sign that's going to be coming out on Kickstarter. Is this the very first game you've worked on, or do you have others that you've worked on, and this is the one that's come far enough to kind of be published at this point? It would be the uh, the latter. This is the first game that's really kind of gotten this far. It's actually the second game, I would say, that I started working on. My first game was called Diner Duel. Also, uh, two Ds in the name. That was, a, that was completely by accident. <laughs> but I was working on it, and I put a lot of effort into it, really liked it. I had a friend uh, who was helping me a lot with some of the graphics. And then another friend said, hey, you should go onto the Game Crafter and put up a prototype. And I was playing around with the Game Crafter after a while. They threw up a contest. I said, let me try it out and work on my skills. Uh, and that was the Steampunk Dice Game Contest. And what ended up happening was um, the game originally was Farns Philoworth's Dirigible Disaster. It's since been shortened. Uh, for the sake of everyone's sanity, but I started, <laughs> I started uh, really looking into it and, and letting more people play it and getting it around. Uh, I shot an early copy over to Father Geek, and eventually just sort of started blooming into this thing that people actually liked playing. Uh, so I said, you know what, it may be good to sort of focus on something that I know is working and I know people's like really, really work that out, and then I can go back to. Uh, Diner Duel later, which I'm just starting to get back into that now uh, and I'm going to focus on after this campaign's over. So this has been really the first big thing, and there's been a couple things here or there, but this one's gotten the most attention. So you have, you know, your your full-time job and and you're working in in a field I'm assuming that you enjoy. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's a rough assumption to make. I should probably ask (laughs) and not assume, but so you're working in a field that you enjoy. What made you decide that you also needed to take on game design in your free time. Uh, and, and specifically, uh, when did you decide, or is there something you can point to that where you got serious about it, where, you know, you wanted to, to get into it from the industry aspect, not necessarily the hobby aspect. Well, that would actually tie more into uh, the whole idea of uh, talking about IT people and whatnot, getting into video game design and saying, oh, no, this is actually a little bit tough. Let me try something else. I played video games through a lot of my life and really like to create my own things out of it. I love games where you could make your own characters or even if it was just small choices to have those choices. And uh, so I, I tried around for a while with making my own video games with various programs, but either I just wouldn't have all the time to put into it or I'd get about a third of the way through it and it would magically delete itself. Uh, and then I'd bang my head against the wall and go do something else. Uh, so what ended up happening is as I started getting more and more into board games, uh, the, the hobby board games and whatnot, I, I just realized that I, I had one idea click in my head and I said, you know what, this is something I could sit down. I could draw stuff out on paper if I need to. Once I have a piece done, I don't have to worry about if there's suddenly some horrible bug that if I put two cards next to each other, the whole thing's going to explode. It just started to click a little bit more for me throwing things together. So I, I played around with that aforementioned game Diner Duel. And really from there, it was it's something that gave me that that customization, that creation that I've always wanted to have in video games and things like that, but that I never was able to get the full grasp on uh, when, when trying to program my own or, or something like that. Okay. So, I mean, that kind of gives you your gateway into enjoying it and maybe kind of doing it as a hobby. But is there something that you can point to where you decided that, you know, you wanted to do something like what you're in right now that you you've decided to sign with a publisher to get your game published? I mean, 
again, the, when you kind of turn it from hobby into industry slash business where, where it's actually kind of, uh, potentially going to make you some money? Well, I, I kind of always, when I, when I started designing my first game, had that in the back of my head that I wanted to get something on a store shelf. Uh, or, or I wanted I wanted to be able to sort of walk around and see someone maybe someday playing the game, someone I didn't know at all, and just just stumbled upon it at a convention or something like that. So I think it was really when I actually sent a, an early copy of this game out to Father Geek that I kind of it really hit me hard because they uh, they played it over there and then everybody actually liked it, and it was one of those moments where I was like. Okay, these are people I don't know. They have no reason to like this game, you know, personally. It's just something that they played it, they had a good time, and they said they enjoyed it. And that's when I kind of realized this is a great feeling. I think this is the best feeling you could possibly get at designing games is knowing that there are people out there playing it and having a good time. And the biggest way to do that is to sign with a publisher, do a Kickstarter campaign, something where you can get it out to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. So it was really that feeling that kind of brought it on a little bit more and said I should get involved more with with a publisher. All right. I'm going to have to ask you to stop mentioning Cyrus. We don't talk about him on this show. You know, there's there's a lot of bad blood there. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no, that that's awesome. I'm glad Cyrus was able to look, look at that early on for you. I mean, uh, I obviously I'm kidding. For those who are just tuning in, this might be the first time. <laughs> Cyrus over at Father Geek is a very good friend of mine. We actually do a podcast together. Uh, that has nothing to do with gaming. Uh, we've been friends for years and, uh, don't run and tell him that I'm trying to start a feud. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's cool. So you, you kind of always had it in, in your mind to go that route, which is cool and interesting in a, in a way because, you know, I know a lot of people that kind of get into it and go, yeah, um, I can make a game and just kind of that's their soul. I'm playing these games. I can make a game and then maybe kind of jump into, well, I can make a game that me and my friends can play and, and there's sometimes it takes a while to make that switch for them to go. Maybe people outside of my friends can play this game and maybe I can, you know, approach a publisher and that kind of thing. So I, I'm always interested in when that spark happens for various people. Cause it, again, it's in all stages, um, when it seems to come up. Yeah. So you've got the the two main games that you've been working on, and it sounds like you've been working on them for a little while now. Have you come up with uh, design processes for yourself that you like to do from game to game? Or so far, either are you still trying to find those, or does it just depend on the game still? It's It's been pretty eclectic and, and kind of dependent on the game. With my first First game, I, I live in New Jersey. It's the diner capital of at least America, United States. So I was thinking about diners and I was like, oh, it'd be cool to do a game about those. Actually, now that I'm talking, I think my big thing is I tend to think of a theme first and then try to try to fit something to that. Because with my original game, it was, okay, Let's. I want to do something with diners and with cooking. I was getting into cooking a lot at the time. Um, and I took that idea of the theme, and I, I ran with it, and I tried to think of an interesting mechanic to go in with it. Uh, for Dirigible Disaster, it was for the steampunk dice game contest at the Game Crafter, where 
it had to have a steampunk theme to it. So I thought of what could fit that theme in there well, and how can I fit dice into it? And one of the other games I did was actually, I've done a couple games that I've used the theme given from Game Crafter contests, and I didn't even submit them for those contests. I just kind of used it as a jumping off point. So uh, for me, I like to actually start with a theme, something that, that gets me interested, and see if I could draw off mechanics out of either the theme itself or experiences I've had with other games, things I thought that did work or didn't work in things that I've played, and if I can adapt them into something different. And uh, I, I feel like that gives you a good place because if you're starting from something that you you know at least has a slight chance of working or or could work better, you're not as worried about all the little early bits and pieces and that stuff that sometimes when you're designing and starting out you could really bog yourself down if you do something initially that's like, no, this is this is garbage. This isn't going to work at all. I have to completely go back to the drawing board. Um, and I actually had a game recently that I, I myself was going to do on Kickstarter and ended up canceling the funding because after I looked at it again, once I had started, I said, I don't like where this game is at. I, I don't like the play as much as I thought I did. And I wasn't as proud of it as I was these other games I've worked on. And I feel like had I not weaned myself in more easily by starting with the theme and starting with some more familiar things earlier on in my design career. I would have gotten to this point in this game and it, it could have been a little bit more, I don't want to use the word devastating, but a little more detrimental to my uh, my confidence in my own design work and whatnot. So I'm, I'm kind of glad that I've taken things the way that I have uh, in my designs. Other than having to shorten the name, uh, from the contest to what we're going to see on Kickstarter here soon, uh, did you have to make uh, any changes with Dirigible Disaster? There have been quite a few. One of the bigger changes was the early game had only a couple of events, and there was no scaling to it. There was no easy, medium, hard, anything like that. Uh, so more events were added into the game in order to give it a scalability. That's the main way you scale the game is by using more or less of the events in playing. So there's more things to worry about the harder it gets. Uh, so there's there's new events uh, from the original game. The artwork is about uh, a billion times better because I didn't do it. The early artwork is... is uh, I'm pretty sure I drew better in elementary school than I did, if I'm being honest. And I may be being a little harsh on myself, but I could have done it in Microsoft Paint. Uh, and I'm sad to say that I did some of it in Photoshop and Illustrator. Uh, so... <laughs> It didn't. It did not really come out the way I was hoping in my head. Uh, but the, the artwork looks great now. The layouts, working with with Dan, or as I've affectionately called him to, to other people I know, publisher Dan, uh, so they don't get confused. It even confuses my friends and family. So I'm I'm very sorry, uh, podcast listeners. But yeah, it, it hit, the things that he's been able to bring to it though, uh, it's just even the way some of the layouts have changed, and even some minor variations to the way some of the events interact and, and things like that. Uh, it's it's really. Uh, become something I think is a little bit more engrossing and a little bit more engaging uh, for people who played it. I like that. Let, let's go with uh, publisher Dan. There. Well, well dude, <laughs> yeah, well, I, agree. I think my main focus um, when I first played it, a lot of the mechanics were there and the gameplay was great. A lot of what I focused on was just cleaning it up. So there were a couple rules that seemed confusing or the mechanics, the way they worked were almost there, but they were a little confusing. Most people would forget to, make note of certain things they were supposed to be doing or paying attention to. So I worked on cleaning those up so that it just flowed better. People got the game easier. They didn't miss rules. And I even tried to do that with the art and the layout to make sure the game board was pretty intuitive when you looked at it or the game tracker, Matt, and the dice themselves. And I just really you know, focused on just making the game as easily playable as possible because I didn't have to change a lot of the mechanics of the designs because it was really there. He, Dan 
you know, play tested the heck out of this thing hundreds of times, I believe he said. And you could tell when you played it that that was true. It was just a matter of making sure everyone got what they were supposed to out of it and they did it right and that it worked. Excellent. Well, and that actually is a question I always like to ask as well. So designer Dan, <laughs> I think I got it, people. Uh, <laughs> playtesting. Uh, I always like to hear people's playtesting process and how important they feel it is to getting their designs to a finished state. So can you tell us a little bit about how you feel about playtesting and, and maybe how much of it you think you need to do to get to that point and if you use blind playtesting, stuff like that. So just your overall playtesting process. And obviously playtesting is going to change from game to game, or at least the requirements. But uh, for me, I know for a fact I definitely have a tendency to play a game and start getting tunnel vision with it, where I'll either focus too much on one little aspect that I don't necessarily need to change as much as I think, or I may start playing the game and at some point start saying like, I don't think this is fun anymore. Uh, but then when other people play it, they're like, no, 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 it is. You're just, you're too, you're too in, you're, you're too, you're too engrossed in it. You need to step back a little bit. So play testing, getting other people to come in and give their opinion is absolutely necessary and absolutely crucial because you are one person and you are trying to sell your game to more than one person. So more than one person should be playing your game. And with this game, uh, there's a lot of dice rolling. There's a lot of a lot of luck that you have to that I had to work around in the design and things like that. So it was very critical to have uh, over you know at least over 100 playtests because there's a lot of numbers that had to get balanced. There's a lot of different events and and different combination of, of die results that you know if if all these different avenues weren't explored, you know there could be the the proverbial game breaking bug that popped in or whatnot that you know if these two numbers roll at the same time, nobody's ever going to win this. It was just incredibly important to make sure that all that testing happened. I did blind play test with this, uh, especially early on um, after the original contest, because really I, I think getting in those blind play tests is especially important because just as you can get sucked into a game too much, the friends or family or, or gaming group that you normally turn to to help play test your games can also, after a certain point, start to kind of, see the game a little bit differently uh, than let's say your average consumer, or whoever picks it up off of a shelf. So getting copies out to people that you don't necessarily know or that don't know the game well enough uh, from the get go. Uh, is really great to get the opinions of just the average person on the street who would walk in, pick up this game, throw it on the table and say, okay, how do we play this? And that was very helpful because I even had a simple issue of my background was blue some of my markers that I had been using were blue and I thought it was a different enough blue so you could see everything pretty well, but it was not. And even something like that, a minor change like that, that I couldn't see myself, you know, came came to light in that blind playtesting segment. So it was really crucial. And I highly recommend that to, to anybody looking at doing any kind of game. And that is great because I still, I mean, it's been a while since I've had a full-blown conversation where somebody didn't see the benefit of blind play testing. And I always kind of just kind of shake my head at that because I think blind play testing can be very important now. Some designers think, well, that's the job of once I hand it over to a publisher, they need to do the blind play testing. But I think even in, in the design, it, it just makes sense. I mean, nobody likes to get a game that needs a designer in the box to play it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I agree. And I think it even helps with. When he, like when I first played it, I got a great sense of the game right away. I was able to pick it up and play it right away and there were no issues. 
And the fact that he blind play tested it beforehand meant when I first got it, I was able to pick it up and run with it within minutes and I, you know, didn't miss a beat with it. So I think me getting a more polished version of it made me love it even more right from the beginning. And that, you know, I'll link in hope. I think I want to, I'm going to ask uh, each of you kind of a different side of the coin question here. So uh, designer Dan, <laughs> what, I mean, you kind of alluded earlier that you had started to venture into Kickstarter and kind of canceled the project that you were working on because of uh, how you felt about that, that particular game at that time. But what made you decide to go with a publisher this time around versus, okay, uh, I'm happier with this game. Let me take this game to Kickstarter. A lot of it was experience. I, the, the original game I went to go put up on Kickstarter and run a campaign for, I wanted to make it something small so I could get used to it. So the manufacturing would be simple. Uh, so it'd be relatively simple for me to handle. And I always looked at, at this game once it started building up, once I got the newer art for it as something that uh, would require a fair amount of work and, and it deserved to kind of, you know, get out there and there should be interviews and all these other things. And it was a lot of stuff that, that I knew would get done more efficiently, get the attention it deserved if it was being handled by somebody who had been there before. Uh, so so having having publisher Dan come in and then Letterman Games come in and express interest in the game and, and play it and love it and really show a passion for it, it was able for me to, to make sure that the passion I had for the game was being expressed in every facet of advertisement and whatnot. But at the same time, it's somebody who's dealt with Kickstarter before a couple times, who knew some ins and outs, who knew areas that they themselves could improve. Uh, and my game was able to see those improvements and see those, uh, see that experience really go into it. So I, I wanted somebody that, that knew a lot about what they were doing uh, and that could really give the game its due. And then publisher Dan, for you, up until this point, you've published your own design. So what made you decide that now was the time for you to start looking at other people's designs and sign them as a publisher. I think it started when I was looking at my last game, Dino Dude Ranch, and I was working on getting it into distribution and stores. And I was talking to, basically, I, I talked to distribution brokers and all of the distributors. And in talking to them, it's really hard with the number of games that are coming out and being a new publisher with one game to really get the attention of any of them. They like, you know, companies that have multiple games. It's a lot easier for them to buy multiple different games from you that they can then sell to the stores. So I knew that in order to really keep pushing hard into this world, I needed a larger catalog of games. I needed to stay relevant and have multiple games coming out a year instead of say one a year. All of these things that would just put me out there more and get me in with these companies and, you know, the distributors. And so with publishing and designing from scratch, both obviously take a lot of time. And I knew that I didn't have the time to to put out another game shortly after my last campaign that was my own. I have another game that I am working on, but it's far away from being done. And I wanted something to keep me relevant, to keep me out there. And I wanted something that was about the same cost and size as Dino Dude Ranch, something that was a similar package so I could contact these places and say, I have two games that are almost the same size, almost the same cost. I can send them both to you in bulk in cases and really make an attractive sell to get these games out there. And when I came upon The Ritable Disaster, it fit a lot of the criteria I liked on top of being a game that I loved. I liked the mechanics of it. It had some unique elements to it. And uh, that's really when I was just like, you know what, this is the game I want to push forward. And 
do next because, uh, you know, it just seemed like a logical step. Do you ever, well, I guess it's, it's pretty early on to maybe have even thought about this, but I mean, some people kind of, I mean, you're, you're trying to do design and publishing at the same time. And of course, you know, each one can't get 100% of your time. So right. how do you feel about dividing your time between design and, and being a publisher for somebody else's design? How, how is that kind of? working for you so far i know we're again i know we're still pretty early in this process for you but sure well basically what i did with the other game i was designing i knew i didn't have time to work on it so i actually talked to another designer that i'm friends with that i said listen i have this idea do you want to work on it together and he was all about it so i've sent him a lot we've been working together on it so it kind of worked out in that he's been helping me a lot with the design of that game so i haven't had to focus too much on the design of it i'll give him ideas on tweaks I'd like to see. And then he'll send me the files and I can play test them uh, with a print and play. But he's been handling a lot of the really hard work, I guess I'd say of it, so that I've been actually able to have the time to publish Dirigible Disaster and focus on that. I don't remember getting that phone call. <laughs> Jeff, I've been playing this game for months. You haven't <laughs> received any of my emails. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, it's just been a, a lot of really solid, positive collaborations with other people so that I can you know, divide my time in the areas that I feel are my strengths and I can be able to devote the time and focus I need to at the times I need to for this. Um, so really right now I've had to send light everything with the other game so I can make dirigible disaster as good as possible and get that out there as well as I can. Um, and then as soon as, you know, once the campaign ends and the files are submitted and you're really waiting on the printer, you get a lot of downtime and that's the point where I can really pick up the other game until fulfillment phase hits for dirigible. So I'd say in about a month, month and a half, I can really pick up the other game again and work full force on it. Okay. Yeah, that, that's cool. It's kind of interesting because for some people that would actually be an additional stress factor to have to do this collaboration on the side, which can sometimes, I mean, once it gets going and is, and is working well might save you some time, but sometimes early on there's a, a, a lot that you have to kind of put into it to get that engine going. So, uh, but it sounds like you've managed that pretty well and, and it's working out for you at the moment. Yeah. I think, I think we got that engine going before I signed Dirigible. So actually I signed Dirigible in July of last year. So we actually got the other game, really the main ideas down and we were working on sending things back and forth before I even signed it. So we got it to that point where the stress was really not such a big deal. And it also helped that I haven't put a time factor on it that there, you know, there's no set deadline as to when we want that game done. So, you know, the fight is taking a little while really hasn't been an issue with us just because I have other things in the work and he has other things in the works and we're dabbling with this. And, you know, once we get the time to, to go full force on it, we'll bring it out. You know, this is probably a good time for us to make the transition. So which one of you wants to do the elevator pitch for dirigible disaster? I would like to see Publisher Dan do it. Okay. <laughs> Earn your money. All right. <laughs> um, Dirigible Disaster is great. It's a lightweight co-op. It's purely co-op. But if you're into co-ops and you're into real-time games, it's really the game for you. My favorite part is the real-time aspect. And the way it's done, it's kind of unlike any game I've ever really played or experienced. And it's really neat because it almost makes it feel kind of like a dexterity game, even though it's not a dexterity game. And it just, it just immerses you in this gameplay that you, I mean, it's really unique and it's fun. And so to experience that, the franticness, the craziness, it's really something I think 
people need to try out just because it's so different and it's very compelling. And people, every time they play it, they usually, I mean, I don't know anyone who's ever won it the first time. And it's that type of thing that you lose and you say, okay, we know what we need to do. And you go back for more and you usually lose again. And it's, it's just this game that draws you in with this unique gameplay and this itching need to beat it. You know, that leads me to a question, designer Dan. I mean, how, how long did it take you to get to a point where you found that edge? Uh, cause that's the, to me, co-ops are extremely hard to design. And I'm speaking from experience cause I've got one <laughs> in the works right now. And that is my biggest issue, I think, with it right now. It, uh, I'm still trying to find that, that line where people either don't beat it easily or it's not too difficult that people don't want to come back for another attempt. So what did you have to do to kind of find that line? That line is a very difficult line to deal with because that line I found is constantly shifting. Just even with, uh, like I said, having playtesters playing it over and over again, they start to get more experienced and then they're no longer representative of kind of an average group. So the big thing was just playing a lot, getting the blind playtests out there and seeing how other people responded to it. And also, eventually coming in and trying to make a little figuring out ways to scale it a little bit and to to make it that people could say oh this is going to be a little bit easier this is going to be a little bit harder uh and then that way people can kind of get comfortable uh with the idea of it first and and feel okay about losing initially because they feel like they're learning something or they're understanding the game better and i I think another thing that really helps with it is that it's a real-time game and it's these one minute rounds and it's action after action going around the table. So it it does get very frantic. So you become kind of almost emotionally invested because after a while you start feeling like, oh no, this thing's really going to explode and go down if we don't do anything. So be able to create a a sense of attention in a co-op game is is a huge thing because that keeps people interested. And uh, for this game, uh, the real time worked great, uh, worked really well. Uh, It also removes the alpha gamer thing. So I haven't had an issue of, teaching the game to somebody and then having to sit there and feel like I need to hold their hand while we're playing or, or give too much input or worry about another player who's played before going in and saying, you should do this and you should do that because everything's so quick. If they did that, they'd be wasting the group's time that they have to be actually trying to fix things on the ship. So uh, I think the real time uh, aspect and bringing that in early on to design really helped uh, with finding that, uh, that line that you talked about of, okay, is this going to be something too hard or too easy? It, it created a, an engaging moment for the players to really uh, let themselves get invested in the in the world that the game was creating. Yeah, and I think I haven't been able to play it yet. I'm, I'm looking at playing it this weekend. I sat down and just took some time to kind of go through the rule book, and I really liked several of the aspects that you're kind of talking about. I, I liked... I like a good co-op. It reminded me a little bit of, and I don't know if, if you had this in mind or if you've played it, but it reminded me a little bit of a real time, uh, Red November. Yeah. Which I like Red November. Uh, but that real time aspect is really nice. And like you said, it's kind of hard to alpha game a bit when you're, I like the fact that it's, it's a, it's one, it's one minute increments. Get as much done as you possibly can, but you get one action and pass, pass the action die or, or I'm sorry, is it the action die? Yeah. Action die? Yep. Okay. Yep. So can I, can I make two comments real quick sure. about that? Yeah. So one thing I agree. I think the passing of the die when I was saying earlier that it's just this unique gameplay experience, it really encourages the players working together because 
it's not just everyone roll, roll, roll. They can. It's you really have to play and pass and coordinate with your other teammates to make it flow, which makes a co-op more of a co-op. It's not just people individually doing things together. It's like you really work together, which not a lot of co-op games really emphasize that. And just about the real time, I love, I don't know if Dan did this by design or it just worked out by chance, but what's great is the one minute is really frantic and can be stressful at times, but it's fast. And then there's setup so you can cool down. So there's a lot of up and down, up and down in a good way in that you get tense, but then you have time to cool off before you go right back into the flames again. And I think that balance of that really works with the real time and that you get kind of built up, but then you have time to kind of relax from it for a minute before you go into the next round. Yeah, and I like it because I think in this particular game, the real time aspect and, and the co-op aspect are probably a little bit easier to teach than say like this past weekend, we were trying to teach all new people escape the curse of the temple, which sometimes that goes really, really well. And this particular time it went really horribly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we had to actually stop the game at one point and say, you know what? Nobody is playing right. And then the second time through, we're just like, well, just let everybody go. <laughs> Um, and, and we'll pull out a different game when this is, when this is done. But I like that aspect and I, and I like, I mean, you guys have the timer in the box, but you also have the audio timer, um, that you can get online, which I like that aspect as well. Cause one of the things we do like about escape is, you know, the, for us, we like to throw the, the disc into the surround sound and just kind of blast it and, and get everybody kind of panicked. But like you said, I mean, you're panicked for kind of a minute and then you cool down while you do all the setup and then you go, all right, you guys ready? Here comes the next minute. Boom. Let's go. And like, like I was kind of saying earlier is that, that single action and pass where in escape, you're always trying to do something and everybody's always trying to do something and you're yelling and shouting over each other. And I'm over here. I'm over here. You know, I'm doing this. I'm doing, you know, and in this, you're still going to kind of get some of that, but. You're not necessarily stepping on each other's toes to do that because if I don't have the action die, it's not my action, but I'm going to get that really quickly because it's one action go, one action go, and everybody is trying to maximize the amount of actions they can get into a minute while dealing with everything that's kind of going on on the ship. So I, I kind of like that up front, but just reading through and looking at it and going, okay, I, I get this. I, I get what's going on here. All right, so... Let's discuss the Kickstarter is going to launch January 12th. Is that what you said? Yep. This coming Tuesday. So January 12th, is it a 30 day? Is it a shorter? Yeah, it's going to be 30 days solely because I wanted it to end on a Thursday and it just worked out that 30 days later. Um, you know, it starts on a Tuesday. It's going to end on a, a Thursday. And yeah, it's 30 days. All right. And uh, how much are you going to be looking for for this one? 8400 8400 and uh pledge level what, what do we what do we have for getting the game so the first pledge level to get the game it's $29 and that includes US shipping domestic shipping um and then obviously outside of the US there's additional charges but it will be EU friendly and then for $49 people can get dirigible disaster and dino dude ranch again shipping included in the US yeah, this is, I mean, it's kind of cool if you, if you like the idea of a real time co-op, this is definitely something that you'll want to check out. And of course, one of the questions that we like to ask, cause we are kind of getting, uh, short on time, but I always like to ask, 
somebody has listened to this and they've decided to go out and check out the Kickstarter and they're like, yeah, I, I can maybe see myself backing this. What are a few things that you would tell them to make them go, you guys, Dan and Dan, you know what? You guys are absolutely right. I need to back this right now. I guess for me, I would say it's a very unique gameplay experience, so it's going to be different from any other game you own. It can be quick, so you can fit it in in a 20 to 30 minute game night. Uh, if you just have a filler spot, you're looking for something quick. It's obviously, we, I think it's it's a lot of fun. So it's a great gameplay experience and it can be played with anyone. So you can play it with your gamer friends or if you have a family holiday get together, you can play it with your family. It's simple enough that anyone can really grasp it, but it doesn't mean that anyone who's recording the games wouldn't like it. And so it really appeals to a lot of people. I just think that, yeah, I think if people take a chance on it, they're not going to be disappointed. And uh, I, I would say we all have that friend that has played co-ops before and has been the victim of the alpha gamer. And they feel like whenever they play a co-op game, they're just sort of sitting there and other people are sort of playing the game for them and whatnot. Uh, I have a friend who uh, got hit with that a lot. And uh, she volunteered to help me play the game one time recently uh, and she's one of the friends that would tell me absolutely if she hated it and she would be very loud about it. But one thing that she said after it was done is she looked in the eyes and said, this is a co-op game I actually got to play. Uh, I, I didn't have to sit there and look at other as other people pretty much dictated what moves I should be doing. And just that alone, let her have a level of fun she hadn't been able to have with co-ops just by nature of who she played with and by nature how the games work. So as publisher Dan put it, it is an inclusive game. It's going to bring in gamers of, of varying types, varying ages, but it's also going to be able to bring in those gamers that have always shied away from co-ops because they don't want to be able to, they don't want to sit there and watch other people play for them. And, and this is going to bring them in and let them participate in the way that they want to. And that's one of the things I'm kind of looking forward to as well. I personally don't care all that much about the alpha gamer aspect, but I know it's out there and I know for somebody like my fiance who might sit in on a game like this from time to time, I definitely would be more aware of somebody ruining her good time by trying to alpha game on a co-op. So, you know, and we, that was, you know, we taught Forbidden Island and all that stuff to a bunch of kids over the weekend and stuff and had a good time. But yeah, we, we always try to watch out for, I'm not going to tell you what you need to do. You can ask me for suggestions or or we'll have a conversation, but we're in, you must do this. <laughs> so we always try to avoid that. So that it's nice that there's a kind of a, a built in thing with this game, with it being the real time, with it being one action per person and with the individual minute rounds that it's hard to be. I mean, if anything, if you're an alpha gamer, maybe you don't want to play. <laughs> maybe not the game for you. <laughs> So we, we, we may have found the, 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 uh, the non-target audience, uh, but everybody else should definitely <laughs> enjoy this game. All right. Like I said, we are kind of getting down to time here. So let me go ahead and do this and correct me as we go along. If I am, if I'm wrong here, dirigible disaster is launching on Kickstarter January 12th, 2016, going for 30 days. Uh, they're going to be looking for $8,400. Is that right? Yep. All right. $8,400 for Dirigible Disaster. Again, you can get the game for $29, domestic shipping included. And, of course, there's that $49 pledge that Dan talked about earlier that also includes Dino Dude Ranch. So if this sounds like something that you're interested in, again, a co-op, a real-time co-op, 
putting out everything that can go wrong on an airship uh, and trying to survive its the maiden voyage, if I remember correct, right? This is the maiden yep. voyage. Yeah. So help it survive its 10-minute maiden voyage, then this is a game definitely go check out. Go look at the video. I'm sure there's going to be other reviews on there as well. And just go check it out and back it And and if this is something that you're interested in. All right, Designer Dan, Publisher Dan, thank you guys very much for hanging out with me tonight. It was a great conversation and always love talking to designers and people that have interesting and cool things coming up on Kickstarter. So thank you very much. Thank you. Had a great time. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Hopefully uh, it won't be another year before I talk to you again. I appreciate (laughs) you having me on and I wish it would just we could do it more often. (laughs) Well, um, I need to talk to you about something, actually, Uh, (laughs) off air. Okay. <laughs> but ominous. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want it on the record. No. Um, <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you very much for once again hanging out with me for the game of crowdfunding interview edition. Like I said, I've got more coming up. Paul's got more coming up. Uh, it should be a good year for Kickstarter and hopefully a good year for interviews as we kind of chug along here. So with that, I'll be back very soon. Thank you for checking out United Geeks Network Family Member. If you enjoyed it and are looking for other online media with a geek culture slant, head over to unitedgeeksnetwork.com where you will find Geeky Voyage, a geek and pop culture blog that explores a variety of fandoms and many pop culture favorites from film, television, music, and various other topics with liberal doses of humor, quirky musings, and heavy fangirling thrown in. The United Geeks Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at unitedgeeksnetwork.com.